Amen. Let me encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word today. As we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read two verses today. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Good morning, sleepyheads. How's everyone? It was uh, bushy-tailed. Didn't seem that way starting the service at 9 o'clock, okay? This was a, a little bit of a sleepy town, but we, we made it. You guys made it to church. I'm expecting a, a few more people at the 11. But this is the bold. This is the brave. We've made it to church. Well done. Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word, why don't you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and... Um, we're going to look at two verses today as you do that, and let me introduce myself while you're looking at or going to 1 Timothy chapter 6. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church. There have been many, many new people that have been kind of coming in and out of the doors of our church, and so I just want to say welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. I would love the opportunity to get to meet you. I will be hanging out at the end of service. If that's something that excites you, uh, come say hi. I'll be hanging out kind of by the windows across from the welcome desk in uh in that kind of middle time after the service between the two services. That would be wonderful. And uh, if you've not been with us, what you need to know is that we've been working through the entire book of 1 Timothy. And a huge part of that is because so much of our church is new and we need to understand what we're to be and what we're to do as a church. And 1 Timothy is all about how to order and conduct ourselves as a church in a way that Christ wants perceived by the world in a way Christ wants us to operate, not so much based on how the world will receive us, in other words, doing what will cater to what the world would want from us, but rather putting forth what Christ wants from us. And so uh, we've titled this series, The Dearest Place on Earth, because that's truly what it is. It's not a perfect place, but it's a dear place. It's God's place. This is God's people. And we are all here undeserving of that privilege, but welcomed in through the work of Jesus. And so we come to uh, the end of this book, and it is very application-oriented, and so I'm trying to kind of divvy up the sections based on the subject at hand, and today we come to quite a controversial subject. The title of the message is, The Witness of Your Work, okay? The Witness of Your Work. And you say, how have we gotten here? Because in chapter 5, we went from widows to elders to now masters and slaves. Like, what's the connection point? And so often we read our Bible like Paul's just bouncing from subject to subject almost randomly. And what holds the whole text together in chapters 5 and 6 is the idea of honor. Okay? So you see in chapter 5 with widows, you're to honor those who are truly widows. 
And if you have faithful elders that are laboring in the preaching and teaching of God's word, they are deserving of double honor. And then in the case of slaves and masters, there's this concept of honor that the master is due. Let me remind you that the entire letter from Paul to Timothy reads as a corrective, which is to say Paul was aware, this was a church Paul loved, this was a church Paul started, okay? And over just a few short years had seen the church kind of take a trajectory that Paul's not fired up about, seeing these issues and errors, and Paul is addressing what he has been made aware of. And today is no different. We're dealing with the subject of masters, and in particular, bond servants shirking their responsibility as slaves to the masters that they work for. So let's just address the awkwardness of the situation. I'm talking today about slaves and masters. Okay? Now, I know that's not like 21st century cool. I know we should skip over this, but here's the thing. I'm not the boss. God is the boss, okay? And so we're going to look at this, and we're also not going to really quickly change what it means. Oh, it doesn't mean slave, and by the way, slave's the better translation. Slave is the better translation. So I don't want to quickly go, it means, it's talking about your employment, it's, you're an employee, and you've got an employer, and it's that relationship. I'm going to say that if we're faithful here, we can get some application for you guys that are working under an employer, okay? But at the same time, I don't want to short-circuit this. So if this is going to be uncomfortable for you, let me just say, rest assured, it's my responsibility to bring you between the world of the first century and the world that we live in today. One of the things that I love about coming to this text <clears throat> is a reminder that the Bible wasn't written to you. Okay, heads up. I know that every Bible, big one, you know, with the notes on the bottom, it's a life application study Bible. You just want to apply it all. But I just want to, I, I, I almost want to just poke a little air hole in your balloon today and say it wasn't written to you. It was written to a guy named Timothy. Another letter was written to a guy named Titus. Another letter was written to a guy named, or to a church uh, in Ephesus. Uh, another was written to a church in Colossae. Uh, another letter was written to these elect exiles that were scattered in the dispersion, like in First Peter. And, and by the way, every single one of those letters that I just talked about right now all mention the slave-master relationship. Now, while the Bible wasn't written to you, it was written for you. And so what I have to do is help you make the connection properly between where we're getting this text in the first century, where we live now, and how to understand it rightly. So let's put our thinking caps on for a second. Let me do a little bit of work, and then we'll get into the text. Does that sound fair? You're here anyway, so suck it up, all right? You can't get out now. You watch. Lock those doors, okay? In 40 minutes, they can open again. There were something like 60 million slaves that were in the Roman Empire at this time. In big cities like Ephesus, as much as a third of the population were slaves. So you ready? One, two, slave. One, two, slave. One, two, slave. One, two, slave. Do you get an understanding of what's going on then in the congregation? 
Okay? So one in three in big cities were slaves. Uh, there were many thus in the church that were slaves. They have some estimates that in the church there were even more than that third of the church being slaves. And so there are also masters in the church, those who were slave owners. And, and when you read bondservant or slave, the issue that we have in our American context is that we immediately read what into that? We read American chattel slavery into this text. That is an inaccurate way of reading and understanding this workable economic system that was built into not only the first century, but centuries back in the ancient Near Eastern culture. If I can give you a little bit of a background, slavery has roots that go all the way back to the Old Testament. And when you don't understand this rightly, it gets brought up in your college classrooms, right? About why Christianity is so bogus, because it's got slavery in there, but most people don't seem to understand the kind of slavery that's going on. Uh, when you look at slavery in the Old Testament, what you see is there was a number of ways someone became a slave. Uh, some were uh, slaves out of being prisoners of war, right? They were ca captives that were captured, and instead of killing them, they put them to work. You can see examples of that in Numbers chapter 31 and Deuteronomy chapter 20. There are often times that um, widows would take their sons and sell them into uh, slavery, um, to be able to pay for bills, or often people would even sell themselves into slavery. It's basically working a contractual agreement with someone over an extended period of time to pay off significant debt someone may have had. So when you think of slavery, we think of this indefinite relationship forever, and it was always a negotiated, contracted period of time, often long-term implications there, which could sound like a bad thing, or in the context of true Old Testament slavery, long-term employment was actually a good thing, and it was a good uh, a security and peace for yourself that you knew work was coming. When we think about slaves, we're talking about primarily domestic servants. That's the word doulos here in the Greek. Excuse, yeah, Greek. Doulos. Domestic employees that would have worked as, if you had a cook in your house, they would have been a slave. If you had a teacher for your kids, they were slaves. If you had a doctor for your family, they were a slave. So we're not talking about low-level, uneducated, sort of a lot of the mentalities we think about, generally speaking. This was cooks, this was household managers, this was field workers, this was teachers of children, physicians, on and on you could go. They were contracted in some sort of long-term submissive service, and get this, they would be paid up front for their work, they would receive housing, they would receive clothing, they would receive food, and they would receive extra money on top of that for the work that they did. And you go, well, what about them being treated poorly? Well, if you read the Old Testament, what you will find is it is full of rights and privileges to slaves. They had religious rights. They were allowed Sabbath rest, and they were allowed to participate in ceremonial festivals and uh, festivities. They had civil rights. If you were injured by your master, you were to be set free, according to Exodus 21. If they could see that you had premeditatedly uh, been intending to kill your slave and you did, you were up for the death penalty yourself. Slaves had social rights. Slaves could marry, they could have children, and when they left, they could all go free, and while they were under the care of their master, the master was to, to support the entire family. 
They are in fact considered extensions of the family, and you can see that at the end of the Ten Commandments in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that says, while we're not to envy other people's spouses, it continues on with male or female servants as well. Slaves had economic rights, believe it or not. They could acquire property while being slaves. They could even hire slaves to do the work they didn't want to do. We call that subcontracting out your work, okay? And you could give the less fun stuff to somebody else to do who needed to pay some bills. This, friends, was a workable economic system, and if you look into the history of it, slavery in this context was often preferred to freedom because of the peace and security in an economy when it was hand-to-mouth and you were surviving on a day-to-day basis. This was long-term support and long-term peace of mind. This is far different than the race-based slavery that was wicked from our history. This was not a race-based slavery. Don't think ratty clothes. Don't think shackles on the ankles. Don't think whips and horrible treatment. Think that some slavery was so good in relationship with the master that the slave would willingly, um, they, would, they would use an awl and put it through the ear of a slave who was saying, I don't ever want to leave. I want to be here for life. This family is my family, and I love serving in this capacity. There's a very different word about slaves than we're often used to because of our context. Now, that being said, it's not to say that there weren't abuses. There were. The reason why there were abuses is because people are sinners, okay? So it wasn't necessarily that the system was broken, but the people that were within the system were broken, and they were sinners, and they have absolutely had circumstances historically where you can see abuses to this system by sinners. When you fast forward to the first century, you'll see that the Greco-Roman world of the day, slavery was woven into the fabric of their culture. And for about 200 years, right before the first century, which is when this was written, there were severe abuses in the Greco-Roman world regarding slaves. And right before the first century, Roman laws were established that were basically humanitarian efforts to take care of slaves much better and even provide emancipation for slaves. So it was actually a stunning time in history because it had gotten a lot better even within the Greco-Roman world. Now, laws can't stop sin in the human heart, but all of this helped significantly. So that being said, I want you to notice something. As you look at the text today, what you'll notice is that Paul's corrective to the church is not to overthrow the system. Because gospel transformation is aimed at people. The gospel transforms people and gospel people permeate society. Okay? The gospel, how the gospel changes corrupt realities within systems is from the inside out just like their changes. 
Okay, and just to be clear, because the gospel is so good to hear again and again and again, and I don't want to just assume gospel. Gospel is a word now that means choir sometimes, right? And singing. And, and when I say gospel, I want to be very clear. I'm talking about good news. I'm talking about the good news. I'm talking about the great news about Jesus Christ. I'm talking about Jesus Christ is your creator. I'm talking about Jesus Christ who never had a beginning, I'm talking about the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who because of God, the Father's plan in eternity past, took on human flesh and lived among us. It literally says that he tabernacled with us. He lived a perfect life in fulfillment of all of the uh, requirements of the law of God in a way that very, very quickly we could find that each and every person in this room has not lived up to the righteous requirements of the law of God. And when you die, you're going to give an account to the Lord, and the account standard will not be your own standard or a standard that's comparative to someone else that you're better at because they have a suckier morality than you do. You will all fall short of the law of God. You are in a dire circumstance and predicament. You go, where's the good news? Well, that's the bad news that makes the good news so glorious. You're in a rut. You can't get yourself out. Here's the thing. You don't even want to get yourself out. You are so lost in your sin that you're not even in desiring of God. You say, I'm seeking after God. I'm spiritual. No, no, you're seeking after God's stuff. You're not seeking after the Lord. Because if you're seeking after the Lord, you would recognize that you're a sinner before a holy God, and you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And all those who trust in Jesus, despite the life that you live and listen, no matter how righteous and self-righteous, kind of prideful you went, super legalistic, you nailed everything, that kind of pride, or the pride of you made a complete train wreck of your life. Either one of those, both need salvation. Both can only go to heaven through Jesus. There's not a single soul in this place that's not in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, he offers himself and the work he did on the cross for anyone who would turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. So you can be made right with God. Okay? And then God sends you into the world to be the impact that the world needs. And your job is not to go in there and change the system. Your job is to permeate the system from the inside out with a gospel-transformed life. And when gospel-transformed people get into corrupt systems, those systems change. Because we have a different ethic. We have a greater responsibility. And we have a higher king. And so as we come to this, Here's what we're talking about. There is an extension of application to your work. The vast, vast majority of people are contracted out to work for someone else, okay? And so by application, this applies. But by extent of application, again, let me say this. The place you work, period, outside of how many hours you sleep, is the place you're spending most of your time. Therefore, it is the place where you are making the greatest impact for Jesus Christ or not. And let me say this, you are making an impact. You are, I'm not making, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, you're not making one is making one. 
I'm not making one. No, no, no. That is making one. We're not talking about whether or not you are making an impact. I'm saying you are making an impact. There's no neutrality to your presence anywhere. The question is, what kind of an impact are you making? Right? What kind of an impact? When we think of work, do you think of it as a sacred calling? Do you think about it as the platform by which to put Jesus Christ on display? Do you think about your work primarily as a place of ministry or a place where you go to make money or a place that you go to make money so that your money makes money so that you can sit back and do nothing eventually? Not a bad play. But the question is, what are you ultimately thinking about in your life? What are you ultimately thinking about in your work? You are having an impact. The question is what kind? And here's what I think we need to look at today. It's the big idea for this morning. Your attitude and ethic at work is directly connected to your witness. You need to know this. And they know, right? Because maybe you're quick to be like, I go to Doxa. And then you work like an absolute mess of a worker. And everyone who bears the name Doxa Church is like, oh, right? Think about that on steroids with the Lord Jesus Christ and representing his big church. How you work is a massive part of your witness. And so in the spirit of 1 Timothy, let's jump in here. 1 Timothy was written to teach the proper conduct and ordering of the church to reveal the glories of Christ and the gospel, not based on what the world will receive, but what Christ wants perceived. Well, what does Christ want perceived in the attitude and ethic of someone working for someone else? There's two scenarios Paul gives us. Both of these were addressed to the church. You'll find it's interesting, only slaves are addressed and not the relationship of the master to the slaves. That's different in other texts of scripture. What that simply tells us is that whatever Paul was dealing with in the church at Ephesus, they had a slave problem with towards masters more than him feeling the need to address masters towards slaves. Okay? So let's look at it. Two scenarios. The first one is you work for an unbeliever. Is that your story? You work for an unbeliever. Second scenario is you work for a believer. We're going to take them each uh, one at a time. Each one has an attitude. Each one has an ethic. Many of you, I'm sure, work for an unbeliever. And Paul says, here's the attitude you have to have, slave. Now, of course, that may not be your term that you're called by, but by extension, I think this applies to those who work for an unbeliever. Here's the attitude. Respect the person so God's name and the gospel aren't reviled. So he says this, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Bondservants is the word for slaves. It's the word doulos in the Greek. By the way, if it was such a horrible term that, and so corrupted, it would be interesting that Jesus himself used the word. It would be interesting that the apostles used the word to describe that they were doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? 
be an interesting word to use if it was translated out of such a horrible circumstance that there was no way to redeem it at all. In fact, it's the same word, doulos, that we get when through love in Galatians 5 were to serve one another. It's where to doulos one another. It's the verb for slave. Now all those under a yoke as bondservants need to do something, need to have a certain attitude. When he says under a yoke, he's explaining the power of a master over his slave, and it was significant. Jesus uses this word yoke in one of the most famous texts in the Gospels. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, right? And I will give you rest. Take my upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is speaking of that power, and, and in that day, the master had power. Even the word master here, we, we know uh, the word Lord because we call Jesus Lord, right? Master is even a stronger word to describe this unrestricted, unrestrained, sovereign authority over an individual. It's the word we get despot from, D-E-S-P-O-T. This is a significant word. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their masters in this way, have this kind of attitude towards them. And so what I want to do here is I want to just kind of paint a picture. What's happening here? Why is Paul addressing this? How am I to understand it? Here's what's going on here, okay? You had Christian slaves that he's preaching to in the church, right? That this letter is hopefully getting to in the church. And these Christian slaves were growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, awesome, right? But as you're growing in the Lord Jesus Christ and you read the book of Romans and your mind is like blown, right? You find out that because of your union with Christ, you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You find that you have been bought with the price that you are not your own. You are the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but this master is saying you work for him. We tracking with this? I don't work for anyone but the Lord. Who is this guy? This guy is ungodly. This guy is unsaved. I don't work for him. Now, there, there is a sense in which we have, we have to work for our boss as unto the Lord, but could you see the possibility of all of a sudden when you reject the lordship in the master sense in this relationship, how that could tempt the slave to not actually be working in a way that would honor Jesus Christ, that would give you an excuse to maybe not work as hard? That's exactly what's going on here. I'm nobody's but Christ. This guy, forget him. And Paul's like, wait a minute. If you're in this kind of role as a submissive servant, and remember what I told you? The slave got paid up front for the work he was contracted to do. It was already there. You had a responsibility to fulfill that role that was required of you. And so he goes, here's the attitude you need to take. Jesus Christ is Lord. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are a new creation. And Christ has made it such by the power of his Holy Spirit who's regenerated your heart. You know how I know you're Christian? Because you have a love for God. Because you love Jesus. Because you have new affections that go, man, I want to please Jesus Christ in everything that I do. That's the evidence of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit over a sinful dead heart. 
And so you come, and here's the attitude he says you're to have. You're to regard your own master as worthy of all honor. This is a command. This isn't something to think about. Suggestion you might want to consider. This is do this. You are to assess, the word is. The the, the word regard there means to assess by objective criteria and not by internal feelings. Which plays in actually really well. We love feelings, don't we? Everything about our world's about feelings. How do you feel? How do you, oh, it's all it's so, so therapeutic. Well, I don't like work because it feels hard. <laughs> eight hour, eight whole hours a day? I'm so tired. I feel tired when I get home. Uh-huh. Is there some biblical counseling I can sign up for? Not for you. Not for you. No. What, what he's saying, honestly, here is regardless of how you feel about your employer, when you assess him objectively, here's how you assess him. You assess him for his position over you. He's your authority as your boss. And you assess him for the provision given to you. He has supplied your livelihood. So by position and provision... You assess your boss, and he says, in light of those things, he is worthy of all honor. Regard your own master. That language, your own, is this intimate language. There's a sense of being bonded to your master here, to the slave's master. There's this relationship going on that if you work for someone, by extension, you are in a sense bonded to them in relationship to offer them the service that you agreed to do, which is interesting because in our day, we don't work typically for other people. We work for who? We are such a self-centered culture. Part of this is actually saying, you know what you do in honor of Jesus Christ? I want you to serve in honor of your boss. Like in some sense, I want you to work for them. And in doing that well, you will do something. You will say something. Your work will testify to something about God and the gospel. That word honor Uh, no surprise, is the same word we see in chapter 5, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. It's the same word we see in chapter 5, verse 17, which says, honor the elders who labor diligently on your behalf, preaching and teaching. We talked about this already, but it's safe to say from previous studies, I can just simplify it for the time that we have and say honor means respect and remuneration. Respect and remuneration. What does honor mean? It means respect and remuneration. So how do you honor your boss? Well, you're not paying your boss, right? But here's the thing. He paid you. He paid you. So you need to what? Get on that horse and get after it, right? Get on the horse. Get some work done. It's hard. Okay, it's work. Have you read Genesis 3? It's going to be hard. We got to like... Get in there because guess what? Genesis 2 says you were created to work before the fall entered the picture. So work is for God's glory. It's hard now because the ground is hard because of the curse of sin. But don't 
lump work in there with that. Work is a gift and it's created by the Lord and it comes into the picture before even Genesis 3. So if that's the attitude we're supposed to have, namely a respect for the person so God's name and the gospel aren't reviled, then how does it actually play out? It plays out in this ethic. You work to adorn God's name and the gospel well. That's what you need to do, which I love. You go, I don't like my boss. He's not a very nice guy. Now, it's different like, hey, my boss is like on the black market, I think, and doing a bunch of things illegal. You may want to leave that job, okay? But like, I don't like my boss because he's a bit of a meanie isn't going to qualify for like a reason to be like, I quit. Instead, we should hunker down and you should be like, wait a minute, I have an opportunity right where I am to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a missionary wherever you go, you spend most of your time at work and you get an opportunity and this is what I'm going to push right now to adorn God's name in the gospel well. That's your job. And guess what? Most of us, we don't even want to talk out loud about God, right? We're like, I hope they see that I'm Christian through my life, right? <laughs> Nobody says anything. They just want to, do you see it? <laughs> like, oh, well, he, here's the thing. He, he, you do get to just work to adorn God's name in the gospel. So now we have no excuse. The reality is all the people who are like, I don't want to talk about it, probably don't live like it either. It's like, I don't want to talk about Jesus. Well, well, hopefully you'll just start by working to honor Jesus. What kind of work? Respectful work, diligent work, obedient work for what you've been asked to do. Why? For God's name and the gospel. What's God's name mean? When he says God's name here, what's Paul talking about? He's talking about God's reputation. He's talking about who God is. So at the name of God and the teaching, you can be sure that the teaching, the teaching, that terminology, is beelining us to the gospel. He's going, I want you to work in such a way that the name of God and the teaching of the gospel is not reviled. The word in the Greek is the word we get blaspheme from. You have two realities at work towards an unbeliever, right? If you're under work, contracted to an unbeliever, you have two realities, and you're participating in one of these right now. You're either blessing God and the gospel by your work, or you are blaspheming God and the gospel by your work. And there's no neutrality here. Now, you may have had a couple bad days, and in those bad days, maybe there was some opportunity to speak evil of the name of God, there's echoes of Isaiah 52 in this. When, when the book of Isaiah is talking about uh, the people of God who were captured by the Babylonians and the rulers wailing on their behalf, they were provoked by God's people, their subjects, for what they were doing to curse God's name. This is kind of the similar idea. Bosses wailing, provoked by the people because they're like, I'm Christian, and now all of a sudden you're a worthless worker because you're a Christian. They know about that, and you're like, oh, this guy is the worst. I'm so close to firing him on a regular basis. And the whole thing that's interesting here is this is basically saying good work for a bad boss, right? Good work for a bad boss. Not so bad, you're like, he's doing illegal things. I should probably get out of here. But bad, like, you know, not saved, not godly, those kind of things. Good work for a bad boss, the lost world would say, forget that. I'm not working hard for him. But the Christian says, I live for something more. 
I live for something greater. I have a superior motivation, and it's the name and teaching of my God. I live and work to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that how you live? Is that what you think about? You're like, well, how does that work? Because I like to come to church every once in a while and think about God every once in a while, but you're like, you're like talking intense. Is this like, are, is there like a JV sermon later and then like varsities now? And then if I want to like casually approach this Christianity thing, is there like a service I can come to later? There's definitely a service you can go to somewhere <laughs> that will give you that, but you're not going to get it out of the Bible. So just so you know, you're like, I don't know, I'm stressed. This is going to sound like a lot. Honor Christ all the time? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Like when you are, this is the sign of you being a Christian, you have a superior affection for God over yourself. You have this almost like cannot control desire to please the Lord and exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. You see yourself going into hostile territory as an exile, putting an excellent work that's respectful of your boss so that there would be no reason because of you to malign the name of Jesus Christ. Because you know ultimately you work for a higher boss anyway. And that doesn't lead you to shoddy work at work. It leads you to greater work. Now listen, this is something we're going to preach again and again and again because four years earlier, Paul tried to preach this to the Ephesian church. And it didn't clearly go that well. He's having to address it again. To be obedient, he says in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, is what you're to do. You're to work in an obedient way with reverence to your master, working as unto Christ, not by way of eye service, which is like, oh, he's looking, right? Marsh Madness is the perfect time. Do you remember that, that little, like, um, what was it, a screensaver that could pop up that looked like you were working on spreadsheets? Liars, right? <laughs> that kind of idea. He's going, don't do it by way of eye service or people pleasers. Like, did they see me do that? Did they see me? But as bond servants, he says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your work is not all ultimately about money? Do you believe that what the boss misses, the Lord doesn't? So stop slacking at work. Christ is worthy. You are either blessing Christ in the way you work or you are blaspheming Christ. Let it be the former, not the latter. Amen? Let it be the former, not the latter. Then he says, second scenario, second scenario, scenario number two. Say you work for a believer. Praise God. Say you got into some employment even here. Somebody grabbed you in the lobby. It was like, you look like you work hard. You're a Christian. I'm expecting good things from you. And so you have the benefit of working for a believer. What are you supposed to do then? Here's the attitude you're supposed to carry. Don't disrespect the person that you're working for on account of your common faith. So he flips it. You're supposed to respect your own master as worthy of all honor. But here, don't disrespect your believing boss on the ground that, hey, we're equals, bro brothers in Christ, spiritual standing, Galatians 3. So here's the other scenario. You got a Christian slave 
who has a Christian boss. This would have been an awkward thing to read in the service, don't you think? What if the slave and the boss were in the room together? Possible they could have gone to church together? Uh Uh-huh. Very possible. Christian slave, Christian boss. Christian slave, learning some things about the Bible, okay? Has an amazing ability to call up quotes and maybe slightly take them out of context, like Galatians 3.28, which talks about there is neither slave nor free, for we all one in Jesus Christ, spiritual standing of equality. So the whole boss thing, you're not really my boss. We know the Lord's my boss, and you're more my brother, so let's call it equal. I don't work for you. We kind of work together. Okay, so when he says, hey, here's a system to follow, I think of that as a suggestion. And because I'm Christian, you know what? My Christian boss, listen, he didn't have to worry. When I'm late to work, it's because the Bible study ran over. You know? And he can understand, like last week, I mean, I was live streaming the Shepherds Conference for most of the day. And so I was doing 20% of real, actual work. But he gets it. Because we're brothers, first of all, what was he going to do, fire me? Uh, He should. He's going, listen, that's not the way to play this. The attitude that you need to avoid is this attitude of disrespect. The word literally means to think down. And it's the idea of devaluing their authority over you. We just kind of get rid of it all. By the way, Taking Galatians 3.28 and saying there's now no distinctions in society whatsoever, because it also says no male or female, and so everyone's like, they're all equal. You know what that does? That equality, it makes the bar that women should be like men versus women being distinctly women and men being distinctly men. When your spiritual standing's on the line, you're absolutely equals. Women, men equals before the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you think that social distinction has been decimated, you're going to have all kinds of problems. We already addressed that. In the same text, it talks about slave or free. Again, spiritual standing before Christ between slave and master is equal, and yet spiritual equality does not eliminate the master-servant distinction. So having a Christian employer doesn't give you freedom to treat the work lightly. And what he's saying is don't use the covering of Christianity to justify shoddy work. Instead, because you have been graced by God with a believing boss, you should, in the words of Emeril Lagasse, the great theologian, kick it up a notch, right? That's what should happen. So attitude, don't disrespect them. Don't look down on that distinction between them and authority over you. You're not equals in the workplace. They're over you. And so you ought to work like this. You ought to work all the better for the benefit of the believer. Now, it's almost hyperbolic what he's saying here, right? How can you work all the better when he said towards unbelieving employees, you're to, you're to consider them worthy of all honor? Is there more than all honor? And yet the idea is to make this distinctive caveat to say, if it was possible you'd work even harder. If the bar is here, you're looking to even go above and beyond to rightly represent the Lord and honor your brother who is over you in this employee, employer, or master, slave, specifically, relationship. 
you are to give them good service. Which is interesting because that whole terminology of good service here is terminology that was revolving around this word benefaction. And the word benefaction was used of first century um, guys in affluent, influential positions in society love to be the benefactor. And what a benefactor would do was normally that person to someone who was socially inferior in exchange for public honor, do something, serve in some way to honor themselves by ministering to someone of lower social caste or situation. And here, what's so interesting is that Paul is reversing the roles and he's saying that the slave is the benefactor. The slave is not normally coming from the higher affluent and more influential position, and yet slaves in the Lord Jesus Christ understand they work for a greater master. And so when slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ enter into a workplace and work hard, they are ministering to others in a way that they do so because they are the Lord's servants ultimately from a position of power and honor in him. That there's actually no distinguishing difference between being God's servant and man's. Those don't contradict. You are God's servant by serving your boss who is a believer and we even sang about this earlier, and I'll, I'll close with this. We, we sang about this earlier, this idea of freedom in Christ. We're free. And we are free, but you need to understand this. The idea of freedom, meaning you can do whatever you want, is ungodly. It's demonic, and it's worldly. You are not free to do whatever you want. You are free to now pursue service to the right master. You, can, you will serve sin, or you will serve God. It's really one of the two. And when God gets a hold of your heart and changes you from the inside out and helps you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you delight yourself in wanting to come under the right master. Freedom is being able to say, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will serve something. The question is, what will you serve? How will you leverage your freedom? If you leverage it to serve yourself, you are enslaved to sin. But if you leverage it to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you will make much of him and you will live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to, friends. We are to teach and urge these things. And I love that he kept it in the present tense because four years ago, that Ephesians 6 text was preached to the same church and they're like, amen. And then four years later, they're like, forget this which is exactly how we are as Christians, right? We read something and you're like, I nailed that. Wait, wait, that's in there? Yeah, so teach and urge these things regularly, repeatedly, again and again. Mind, teaching, will, doing. Let's get after it, yeah? Let's encourage one another in this pursuit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word, of the gospel, and that we are considered counted as among your people. Father, I pray that we would make a massive impact in the world for your glory and for our good so that Christ would be rightly exalted and the gospel would be seen in a favorable light from those who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Would you lead us, God, now as we respond in worship? 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.